welcome to Painting in Motion. Uh, this week we hear part two, the second and final part of this interview with Brad Eastridge, and we talk in more detail about the film Birdie by Alan Parker, but we also talk about some paintings, in particular one painting by Francis Bacon and the many ways that the image overlaps with the imagery of Birdie. Um, If you enjoy what you're hearing, please don't forget to either subscribe or follow us on Instagram at paintinginmotion so that you can keep up with upcoming episodes and you can also follow us um, on any podcast platform that you decide to use and you can leave a review which makes it a little bit easier for people to find us and I hope you enjoy part two with Brad Eastridge. coincidental if it makes you wonder like where those choices are being made because it's not going to be the same role again but there's there's still going to be like that venn diagram where there's you, you can't help but connect it because it's just natural to do that and it's an unusable character to play like you don't see people playing birds like that <laughs> but i loved it and it was and it was just it was so pure and there's a lot of innocence with it too even though it it comes from all these really dark places but i don't know and and the painting that you shared is really interesting um and so and what's what's the name and the the painter of the okay art? you know when i when i switched on you to to birdie i was thinking okay it's got to be francis bake i just knew that somehow in my head but because i always loved his work i didn't have anything in particular in mind i just thought you evocation of that sense mentally and that kind of kinetic energy that he has kind of fit the movie and lo and behold i go through his 50s period and every fucking thing he did in the 50s is basically an image of birdie yeah it could be at least and i had a lot i mean i scrolled it took me a while to find the right painting because there's so many things here in fact just for any listeners that want to look them up the uh, the runners up here are Crouching Nude, the final version from 51, Figures in a Landscape from 56, Study for a Portrait of PL Number 2, Owls, Frogmouth Owls, Identity Crisis, Self-Portrait 1956, Figure 1951, Study of a Nude 53, Study of a Figure in Room 53, Seated Figure 54, and Man in a Wash Basin from 54. And it's incredible because you're basically, you could put them up on the wall and call them storyboards for 30. That's wild. Insult Francis Bacon. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but uh, but the reason I chose this one is because it has the most kinetic energy of all of them in terms of the painting that fits that crouch pose. And and I thought at first, gee, is this going to be too on the nose to pick? I mean, surely she wants something 
that's a little mm -hmm. bit broader than just <laughs> something that compares to an exact image in the film. But I couldn't find for the life of me anyone in the film ever mentioning Francis Bacon in the discussion of this. And maybe Matthew Modine saw this painting subconsciously. I don't know. But the fact is, is very eerie. And especially when I started to look into Francis Bacon's life for this, because I didn't know much about him anyway. He's kind of a, an enigma. But the context of all of that fit this painting because you also have at the top sky which is very rare especially in this period for francis bacon or what seems to be sky you have a, at least a blue ceiling and you also have a wraparound form not just a bed or a box that a lot of the 50s portraits are but something that actually has a more surrealistic frame a more dreamlike frame and something which encircles the space so that and also very uh, evocative to me and the colors you have that little bit of yellow at the bottom and you have the blue at the top and you have more color going on in the in the figure itself it's not as as pale as most of the others in that period so there's more of a sense of that light and dark that fit oh. that, that fit with the film well and i was reading there was like a story about because i don't know much about baking either but one of the first like ever like one of the first like art galleries that i went to as an adult was when i went to like a series of galleries at the national mall or close to the national mall in dc and it was i think at the national art gallery that i saw like a single francis bacon and i couldn't tell you which one but i just i just remember just like there's just such a stark presence with it and so i feel like so hearing you share like multiple bacons, like I'm already imagining what they must look like. So I, I know I need to look them up, but I can see totally where it relates to the imagery of Birdie because a lot of the themes that the film deals with, from what little I know of Bacon, I know that there's like some correlation with it. Um, and with reading about this painting, um, did you, have you read about the color that he was trying to find and like why he chose some of the materials because there's like a weird story no i don't too. know that well so apparently he liked he preferred to paint on the unprimed part of canvases so he would buy raw canvas or usually he would buy pre-stretched canvas but paint on the back of it and so it would be primed on one side but he would turn it to the raw side and so this painting, and I think it was from 48, the one that you picked, um, he painted on the primed um, side, like a normal person, just not what he would normally do. And it was um, already primed with oil paint, like a white oil paint. And so he started with oil paint in the foreground and then worked into the background after. And the color that he wanted for the background was Phoenician red, and he couldn't find it. And this, like the word Phoenician, I was thinking like Phoenix. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so yeah. he was looking for Phoenician red, and he couldn't find it yeah. for whatever reason. So he, instead, he took pastel, and it was some kind of, and apparently Phoenician red is, it's not a true red. It's like a really vivid magenta so it's more like a like that it's like this pinkish fuchsia color that you see in a painting but instead of paint he used chalk and he took it and he grounded it up 
and made like this weird like chalk slurry that wasn't paint but used it like it was and so he had this pigment that dried completely different from the oil paint and it would flake off and so like so i'm picturing it like flaking off like little pieces and then um it, it made me think of the film too just like metaphorically like having like layers being peeled back but then I would know I was thinking about Birdie and like how important music is to Alan Parker Parker and I was thinking about um the way he filmed the wall that's what made me initially look up when the wall was made and then that's when I saw it was back to back and there's that story about the wall and I promise there's a point to this story <laughs> but there's a like, you might know about this story where like when the wall was being shown somewhere maybe it was at um at the Cannes Film Festival, it was like either not officially part of it or they had to, something happened where they had to show at like a theater outside of the actual festival, but it was during the same festivities. And they had like, the sound was so incredible. Like the sound system was like super, super loud. Like they really amplified it. And then they claimed that like the paint was peeling from the walls. So I'm picturing like the peeling paint and I'm like, there's these interviews with Alan Parker talking about how important music is. And there's a difference, like all directors use music, but there's a way that he uses it where it's, it's more like a music video. There's more symbolism. There's more, this kind of like music expressive qualities that are like unexpected. And so to see the Francis Bacon painting and then read about the paint peeling off. And I'm like, that's so Alan Parker. And I'm like, that's so birdie because it's just like, you have the, ju the juxtaposition of the different textures, just from the different kind of pigment. But then there's all the symbolism behind it too, because he has the person he is with his family and at school, but there's this constant inner personality that's there the whole time too, and side by side. And so it's like this painting's like a physical embodiment, I feel like, of Birdie. So I thought that was super cool and super weird. That is fantastic. No, I hadn't heard that story, but it, it you're you're so right. You know, one of the things that really was creepy also about the fact that this turned out to be such a, a perfect symbiosis was when I did start to to look up more about Francis Bacon and really read more about him, just you know, because I wanted to be a little bit uh, of, of some use on the subject, but also because my own personal interest. Well, I think one of the interesting quotes that I found was, you know, because in the 40s, he had a kind of abusive relationship um, and he was kind of masochistic and his partner was rather sadistic and it became violent at some point. But he had this thing about, loving someone but not ever being able to be close enough and it fits in with this visceral sense of of his attack on the frame uh and also on the face itself of a human with his portraiture and the quote is how can you cut your flesh open and join it with the other person you can't which in a sense is so much of the longing of Bertie's own imprisonment as feeling the wrong species in some sense and in the wrong world and in the wrong time and place, you could say. Um, there was also a sense of the 
triptychs that he did. The triptychs are interesting to me because they also involve a kind of perversion of a religious iconography, which is exactly what we have in Purdy. I mean, I say perversion as a, you know, from a strict sense. And I, I think uh, the other thing that I, I, uh, I found was uh, his tendency to destroy what didn't live up to his expectations um, in his own work. I think that there's a constant rebirth going on with Bacon because every decade is a different lover and a different artistic period. I mean, he even went into furniture making at one point, which I think is, is fabulous. Oh. Um, and that was early on. And so I think this idea, and not being as, you know, being entirely self-trained, all of these things, it kind of fit into this sense that he was floating through life most of the time and seemed to be above it all, but at the same time, always being Sisyphus pushing against it all. So uh, I guess the other thing that that made me think of was how appropriate it is that he used so many Moybridge, Edward Moybridge studies for his work. And also his, he was inspired by Bunuel and, you know, maybe by Eisenstein. And I think that there's a bit of a feedback loop there that, that's interesting. So that there's, there's a lot of the kinetic energy in his work that's feeding in through film and the inspiration of film, which then comes back out and makes it so potent. That's you know, cool. I didn't thing. know that about the um, Moybridge connection. That's really cool. And I feel like like what you're saying where he went through phases where like a lot of artists, you can see the phases where there's transitions and there's different bodies of work, but you can still find a lot of connections. But I think when there's more discord, which I love when that happens, I feel like that's more rare. And when it does happen, it's usually it's usually related to there being more discord in their personal life and with their identity, especially. Like there's a lot of just like self-identity changes that are more drastic, I guess. And I feel like like for all of us, like we all like evolve and change, but it's definitely more drastic for some people and not usually by choice, which probably makes it harder. So I can totally see that connection. And when it's someone like Birdie, that metaphor is so potent because there's lots of people who have, for whatever reasons, whether it's just their environment or family or just being at the wrong place or with the not best people, they haven't found like their people yet, where they're having to not, they're not able to express themselves fully. Or if they do, and, I, and that's what I love about Birdie too, is when he's at school, he's so excited and he's just like completely, he's just completely like feeling at ease because he's starting to talk about what really interests him. And it seems like there's some feedback and then he gets kind of pulled down again. And I'm like, no, I'm like, stop laughing at him. <laughs> I get so upset because it happens to a lot of people. And I think it's, it's definitely, I mean, the, we can all relate to it in some way, but it's harder for some people. Like you just can't help just because of how things are. And there's so many things that aren't accepted yet that should be. So I love that reason for that movie too. 
but yeah. So yeah, so it's interesting to think about what Bacon's influences are because I think I think going back into someone's life, it always it always gives it always lends a better overview of how things unfold. So I need and to as a Velasquez fan, especially, I thought was interesting because you have in Velasquez similar. Uh, you know, sort of influence over Dali in his work um, to some degree that I think fits really well into this obsession that Bacon had with revisiting particularly the Velasquez Pope and, and these other photos of classic art to, to the fact that he wouldn't want to, to visit the actual one in the gallery once he had worked on it because to see it in person would violate that sense of awe and that sense of um, being larger than it could be in real life in your mind. And that there was another rebirth that seemed to be a constant obsession, just like his self-portraits were constantly changing over time in the, in the style. Um, and there were two Cubist references to the makers of Birdie that I found interesting in that um, I think uh, Matthew Modine calls Nicolas Cage a cubist performer in the sense that he deconstructs the form of what a, a performance is and rearranges it in its own new way, in its own new language with everything that he does, which I totally buy. Yeah. And I love that quote. And then uh, Sir Al says something i'm sorry i've got like five pages of notes and bad handwriting oh that's great exciting <laughs> but i just wanted to so you can cut out this boring bit if you want while i try and find this quote i'm about, sure i won't <laughs> i'm sure you'll cut out most of my i hope no <laughs> here we go oh yeah that's right um it was uh the fact that picasso he's alan parker says you know picasso didn't revisit his blue period and go back and do it again in orange. And I think there's something to that too, that to, to stop evolving and reconstructing your style and your ethic as a, and your point of view is to, in a sense, stop flying or to be a dead shark is what you always say. And I think that the other aspect of birdie that's interesting is where it fits in Alan Parker's, filmography you know there's some would say that mississippi burning and angel heart are conventional i wouldn't say that for a minute um or even angela's ashes but i think what there is is a sense of of reinvention with every film stylistically and thematically in terms of going from something like fame yeah or for, what just going for bugs and alone and then going into, you know, Midnight Express, and then going into Fame, and then going into The Wall, and then going into Birdie, and then going into, and I may have this backwards, but it seems like that's a lot, like Mississippi Burning, and then, or Angel Heart, and then Mississippi Burning, and, uh, you know, then into things like Evita later on. There's always a sense that Alan Parker was trying to wrestle away any kind of constraints about what he was as a filmmaker and he had a rather contentious relationship with the critics so i think part of that was 
him again trying to show the whole 360 view of what his points of view were about the world on different kinds of subject matters, different tones of things. And I think that part of that comes from that beauty of making thousands of commercials and learning how to do that and communicate that as succinctly as possible with ever, with a whole universe of subject matter and styles and expectations. So there's a rebirth maybe in his work too. I noticed that with the few interviews I watched where he, he mentions critics because he's there's an interview where he's talking to one. I'm sure he talks to hundreds that he didn't want to talk to because this this particular critic was talking about um, bad reviews and it wasn't that Alan Parker was opposed to a bad review but just the fact that there were like these like one-liner kind of statements that that happened from a lot of bad reviews and from the examples that this critic was giving him that was interviewing him it's like I guess he what he was giving it to him just to have some kind of a reaction and instead of giving that he's just like you know it takes time to write a review that's thoughtful and the more time you take the more nuance you're going to find but if it's a bad review and it's just like really potent and punchy like that's not this is not as much time usually and it, it means that they haven't they haven't really delved into the film and so it wasn't that he didn't like negative opinions but it's just the way that they're written sometimes it's like, or the way that they're presented in this interview it's just like like what can i do with that and the critic was like not happy that he was like discussing it and not being like an, like i guess emotional like emotionally showing like some kind of wear from it and so um anyway some more that they're talking he talks about how controversial he is and i thought okay i didn't know he was seen that way that he was seen as being controversial and he pointed his finger back and he was like well, you're, you're the one that's calling it controversial. He's like, that's just your point of view. And the, in, like, with, before letting him finish, the critic was just like, no, I'm just, I'm just stating what the obvious is. Like, you, you just are. And he's just like, okay. He's like, I'm controversial. But everything he says is so accepting. You can tell he's just like, no, I'm going to give it back to you. Or I'm going to hold this mirror up and tell you what you're saying. So you know how ridiculous it is when it's just like these one-liners like, okay, well, you're this, well, you're that. And it's like, it makes me think of people who just have a hard time with accepting something that they're not used to. And instead of asking questions and saying, well, tell me more about it, or I don't understand, it's just that like, okay, well, I don't want it. And his work is so much about expo like exploration and expression of your identity. So it's like, of course, he's not going to act like that back so i loved his response to that i thought that was cool and how eloquent he was because it really frustrated the critic i saw so that was really great <laughs> oh no you. It's, it's frozen oh no you're back okay you, am i still here you, you are my time okay. is almost over though. oh no okay well we can do a bonus episode where we yes. talk about the other stuff yes i would love i would love to watch like a tony scott or a ridley scott film cool. or a double feature it doesn't yeah, we can so pull cool. we can do it alan parker style and not follow the rules exactly so. Exactly. I cannot tell you how much I have loved this. I miss talking film with you in person and art. And uh, anytime you want to have me on, I'm down 
I would I'd love, love to that. come back. Okay, well, I would love to already plan it because I think that would be great. Yeah, and let's I've do. I've already like with both with both uh, picks that you chose, it were it it was artists who I was familiar with, but works that I did not have any experience with. So I thought that was really cool. And you're my second interview. So my um, first interview, um, it was a film that I had seen, but even then the perspective was so wild compared to what I had thought of it before. So, or how I had approached it before. So it's always really fun. So I would love I that. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thank you. And I'm going to, I'm going to check out this other paintings too. But yeah, I'll send you um, just for fun. I'll send you a list of all that stuff, um, and uh, and and my Alan Parker file for that book I never <laughs> finished writing. If you want that, because there's yeah. lots of good interviews on there. That you might I would have. love that. That would be cool. Well, cool. Well, thank you so very much for having me. This is truly an honor and a privilege, and I appreciate you thinking of me. Me too. And I think if anyone, if anyone shouldn't have a podcast just based on like whatever personality, I, I want to just say me, if I'm like, I don't think I should have one and you oh. not have one just based <laughs> on your knowledge alone and on, and then on your voice. So I hope that you have something or a show, something that needs to be more ready straight in the world. Well, so. <laughs> thank you so much. I feel the same way about you, and I'm so glad and thrilled just when you announced that you were going to do this at all, because I'm going to be obviously a big regular fan of yours. 